If you have a brain, you have bias. So let's just own it. Some biases help us by simplifying our decision-making process. Other biases hold us back by impacting who gets hired and promoted, and even who we approach to be our friends. Welcome to Breaking the Bias, a podcast where we interview impact makers who are breaking the bias when it comes to inclusion and equity, because sharing our stories is how real belonging happens. So if we don't have mindfulness, how can we bridge that to compassion? If we have never checked in with ourselves and in the moment and became aware of what we have and what we don't have and how we feel and how we sense and how we experience the world, then how can we see that in someone else? So the more that we practice mindfulness, the more we have access to compassion, the more we can see that someone else is suffering because we will have noticed that within ourselves. Today, Consciously Unbiased founder Ashish Kaushal virtually sits down with Misty Huckabee, CEO and founder of Capacity to Care, a nonprofit organization focused on the simple idea that acts of kindness are contagious and can impact the world. They talk about the neuroscience behind empathy and compassion the benefits of cultivating compassion in our professional and personal lives, how mindfulness allows us to tap into compassion so that we can be there for others by spreading ripples of kindness, as Misty puts it. Now onto their conversation. Can you share a little bit about your path to studying neuroscience? So my path of neuroscience was inspired greatly by my grandmother. She was a, uh, a nurse, a psychiatric nurse, and also a nurse in a men's prison facility. She was probably uh, not even five. She was four foot 11, tiny, tiny gal, and would be going up against these people that were otherwise deemed criminals. And um, she just had a great way of speaking with people and was very uh, psychology based. And I say, grandma, I don't know if I want to do psychology because I was going to school for business. And I thought that doing psychology would help me understand people because at this time I really loved people. (laughs) I still do. And she said, well, why don't you do neuroscience? I thought that was a novel idea. So I was like, okay, sure, I could do that. (laughs) And so uh, I pursued my path to neuroscience. I switched my basic classes. So when you're an arts major, business arts, right, or psychology, and you take biology or math or anything like that, and you switch to science, you have to take all those classes again. So I had to take uh, calculus for science majors and calculus, or um, sorry, biochem for science majors and all these other classes, which took me a, a bit longer, but it made me fall in love with the science even more and at a deeper level. And so then I thought of a place that I would want to work at the Center for Brain Health. And I asked them, can I please intern for you? I'm in a position where I don't need to be paid. I love the research that you're doing and I want to help. You know, will you please have me? I'm making the switch from business to science. And so they paired me with a woman there where we did uh, virtual reality and pediatric social cognition with children that uh, were on the autism spectrum or that had uh, ADHD, ADD. And she was such a great mentor to me, um, showed me that there really was a place for women in the science world, in the workplace, that were also mothers and caretakers 
And it was the most amazing experience of my life. And I felt so at home. I was like, okay, I'm going to keep pushing through. And then shortly after I applied for my master's at University of Texas at Dallas, I got in and here I am. Hmm, interesting. So what brought you from like, <clears throat> science is a very factual based sort of degree, right? But then you looped that into taking care of people and empathy. Yeah, that's a really great, a great question and a really personal question, too, because as a little girl, I was I really excelled, honestly, in math and science. But I grew up in a very rural area where church was a really big basis. Not that that's a bad thing, but that's very spiritual. Um, and there's also a lot of nature. And most of all, women are teachers or caretakers or mothers. None of my science teachers were females. And so I fell into more of a nurturing path, which um, I'm a big sister, so I'm also super nurturing. Uh, but I, again, I excelled in math and science, but those classes weren't really offered to me. And so a lot of my life, I even remember telling people that I wanted to marry uh, science and spirituality because I don't see a big difference in between them. There's a lot of things in neuroscience that we can't see, right? But then when we created the fMRI, we're like, oh, I can now see that pathway and what's going on inside the head. And so what if that's the same as the spiritual realm? You know, it, there's things there that we feel and we see and we, well, we feel we don't see them visually, but we can't explain. Yeah. So a lot of my life, I wanted to uh, kind of figure out what the bridge was for those. And for me, that was neuroscience. And, and that also took me a longer way to get to my degree, but it was necessary, right? Because I had to go through both sides. I had to go through the nurturing and the spiritual side and I had to go through the science side or else I wouldn't be a complete being to be able to talk about this because really compassion is both. Yeah. And tell me a little bit about the empathy program you did at Stanford. So I'm still working on that. It's a year long program and it's at the, um, make sure I get this right, the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research Education. It's called C-Care. And so when I was 25, maybe I shouldn't say how old I am. No, I'm kidding. People. <laughs> uh, so probably about, I think, seven years ago, and I wanted to create um, my capacity to care. I created that. I was reading a book by a neurosurgeon, because I'm in neuroscience and uh, it's called Into the Magic Shop uh, by Dr. Doty. So, and I saw that he was working at Stanford. So I reached out to them. I was like, if you're doing training, I want to take this. And I stayed in contact with them. And then finally, when they launched their training, at first I couldn't afford it. Then eventually I saved money and then I joined the training and it's been completely life-changing. Um, it's called applied compassion training. So it's really taking the principles of compassion and teaching us how to apply those in everyday life. So now I can take my neuroscience background and loop this into uh, the every 
every day in everything I do. And uh, that's been really life-changing. So can you give me an example of when, what you would have done in the past and how, and like how you've applied compassion now? So in the past, when I started my nonprofit, I knew that some people had things that other people um, might need. For instance, if someone has a lot of um, clothing for an interview and a person that is really trying to get ahead in life, they just got their degree, but maybe they can't afford a suit is looking for one. I thought, well, wouldn't it be novel to pair these people? And so that's where we came up with spreading uh, ripples of kindness and kindness is contagious. But that was very based on how my brain works. Okay. I see a problem and I want to fix the problem. And sometimes I would, I would struggle with how would we get there to solve it? So since joining uh, Stanford and working with C-Care, the, main thing there is compassion is going through suffering together. This isn't just a solve it real quick type of thing. Mm -hmm. So I've learned that every day, the more that I'm experiencing these issues of how to solve things and get from A to B, the more that I need compassion and the deeper that I'm going to feel this. And so the way that I would handle things now is I'm in less of a hurry. I'm more uh, humble. I'm more grateful and I'm more at ease because I know that the tools that I have to deal with in this moment are going to help me arrive at my destination. Whereas before taking this training, I think I was, very young and uneducated on the path of compassion. And I just wanted to solve the issue. Yeah. So I wasn't using my toolkit. Mm, that makes sense. You know, it's kind of funny. I, one of my favorite videos, I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's not about the nail. It's this couple that's on a couch, right? And the woman has a nail in her, fore- in her forehead and she's talking to her boyfriend. I think he, I think he's her boyfriend. And he's like, She's like, I have this pain and it's like throbbing and I don't know what it is. And like all my sweaters are getting like ripped when I take them off and like all these other things. She's like, I just don't know if it's ever going to go away. And he's like, I think if you took the nail out of your head, that would fix it. And she's like, stop it. You're always trying to solve the problem. And like the reality is like what it's really teaching is that I'm not asking you to solve the problem. I want you to hear me. Right. And it's just done in a comedic way. But it is, it's interesting what you're talking about because I think part of, our um, societies that we lack patience and we lack the ability to sort of like really just hear what the issue is and rather than trying to solve the, the pain point. It's, it's not really a pain point. It's, it's a, some, a symptom of something else that you need to get to. Right. And if you actually create empathy around that, you get, you get past the symptom to the actual issue. So tell me about the capacity to care organization you started. Uh, so capacity to care is, initially started as a nonprofit uh, where we made, we kind of used guerrilla marketing where we made these signs that would say, take what you need. And we put a phone number on there, a Google phone number. So people could call us if they needed to. And a team of my friends and I in Dallas, and we went out, uh, put these around town that would, and the things that you would need were like um, patience, kindness, understanding, um, these kind of intangible things, right. Um, 
but there were things on there. Some pe- some people would call and say, I need clothing. And so that was really cool because we were trying to figure out how can we bridge the need with these things that are in excess. You know, mm-hmm. some people may be retired and have some free time. They they may uh, not have their grandchildren around. They may want someone to mentor or talk to. I mean, every everybody has something to offer. I truly believe that. And I think that's part of human connection. So it was a bit of a social exp- uh, experiment where I also wanted to make it fun or cool or interesting to volunteer again, because I think people were really burnt out with being asked for money. And, um, and I would see that people were still in need, but I, I do believe that humans are inherently good and that we really want to help each other. And maybe we don't know how, Mm -hmm. so that's why it was started. And that was really fun. But Obviously, when the money ran out for me to be able to pay my own rent and things, you know, it's like, okay, this is the real world. You know, I still this is a nonprofit, but if I can't pay my rent uh, or have Wi-Fi, then, you know, we can't set up these meetings. I can't pay my bill. And so then what the entity became really was an entity that spreads compassion and I think because of that movement, I would call it more of a movement now and that process that hopefully, and I think I did inspire quite a few friends and other people that then went out into the world and made these compassion based businesses, whether it be yoga or different projects. I mean, we, we partnered also with other charities and organizations and we, and so now what I'm doing is I'm really focusing on the compassion within nonprofits. So now that I'm running a bird sanctuary or helping run one, I see how burnt out everybody gets in a nonprofit. And it's not like being a doctor or working in healthcare where you have checks coming in, you know, as long as you're solving the problem. I mean, we're rescuing birds. The birds aren't cutting us checks, you know, the government isn't cutting us a check. Uh, Insurance isn't cutting us a check. And and these people that are doing this hard, necessary work are burnt out. And so now I'm I'm working on accessing compassion so that we have more compassion amongst each other within the within the organization so that we can deal with these heavy issues that need solved, but that may not be solved. So that's what capacity is. Uh, capacity to care is today. We call it C2C. And I would say it's more of an energetic thought behind spreading ripples of kindness and and the fact that it's within all of us to do to do so. Very cool. And what does mindfulness mean to you? So mindfulness to me means being aware in the moment. I may have cheated a little in life because of my grandmother. She would always reach out and she would kind of pat me on the hand and she would say, be mindful. So if I was running and I tripped or if I spilled something or I ran into someone, she would remind me. And so I kind of have that in the back of my head. Do you ever, you know, um, chew too fast and you bite your tongue? Yeah. It's the worst. (laughs) I was, what was I thinking about in that moment that I'm not paying attention that I'm eating, you know, was not being mindful. And so mindfulness to me is in checking in with those five senses and checking in with our breathing and checking in with the moment. And um, it anchors us to the present moment. So interesting. 
And then what does compassion mean to you? Compassion to me is going through suffering uh, with others and being there for others as they go through that. Can you share a time when either you witnessed or were impacted by an act of compassion? Oh, yes, many. I think one of the earliest acts of compassion and what really motivated me to start my nonprofit would have been several occasions in high school when I lived alone. Um, my parents had moved back to the city to build planes. I lived in my rural town alone. And I remember a teacher writing me a check for $100 for groceries uh, so that I could eat. And it really hadn't occurred to me that I had been suffering in that sense, it was just normal to not have access to food, right? I would have a dollar and it's like dollar menu at McDonald's. I mean, this is a small one stoplight town. So there's like a McDonald's or a Sonic. I could not afford Sonic, but that $1 hamburger when I was a kid, when I was, you know, there's one, my only option. And then also I would go to school early and uh, I would have lunch and I had free lunches. But when she wrote me that check, it would, it, it really had me confront what I what I had been missing in that sense and the kindness behind it that I didn't ask her. I wasn't saying I was starving. I didn't even realize I didn't have food, but she knew that I lived alone and a part of her must have felt that I must be hungry and, you know, children eat a lot and we need it to think and do is our best in classes. And so that was really life-changing for me. Oh, wow. And so how do you, what's the link between mindfulness and compassion, you think? I feel that, well, I don't feel I know. <laughs> so if we don't have mindfulness, how can we bridge that to compassion? Um, if we have never checked in with ourselves and in the moment and became aware of what we have and what we don't have and how we feel and how we sense and how we experience the world, then how can we see that in someone else? So the more that we practice mindfulness, the more we have access to compassion, the more we can see that someone else is suffering because we will have noticed that within ourselves. No, that makes sense. Um, Because you have to be in the moment to really acknowledge things that are happening that are not about you. Right. Um, what's the link or sorry, what's the neuroscience behind compassion? So there's been a lot of research on this and compassion is linked in this area of the brain called the periaqueductal gray. And this is in a part of the limbic system, which the limbic system is our emotions and, um, our fight or flight complex and things like that. And then it's also with the cerebe- or the cerebellum, which is at the back of our head. And this is the very old reptilian brain. And this is um, associated with movement, right? Or your heart heartbeat speeding up. Okay. So that's, sorry, that's what connects um, our feelings to the fight or flight. And so compassion is intimately connected to the two where we can have this feeling, this conscious feeling, but we can also have movement. So I interpret that, and science is always changing, but the way I interpret that as a neuroscientist 
And my love for compassion is, okay, cool. This pathway in our brain is so close to the movement, the, this motor part so yeah. that we can take action. And that's really where, okay, the feeling and the suffering and noticing someone else's suffering. If I notice your suffering, but I can do nothing about it, I'm going to get burnout. That's when I've, I'm sad watching it. You know, you, yeah. you, you're sad when you watch a TV show, but you're not doing anything to alleviate that suffering suffering. Mm-hmm. But this mo- motor part or this to take action and move that's part of this very old part of our brain is there for a reason. One, it tells me evolutionarily that it we've always had this ability within us. This means compassion can be cultivated. And so we can recognize it and now we can take action. And that's going through the suffering together because then we can alleviate it only when we get to the other side of that, that wall and that suffering. Can you give me some techniques that we can use? Like, I want to be compassionate, but let's say I'm not, right? How do I sort of brain hack my mind to get there? My biggest hack is mindfulness. But if people aren't into practicing mindfulness or uh, don't have access to guided meditations, which you can find online. I would really uh, recommend starting with self. So that's why we say creates ripples of kindness. So there's this old Buddhist saying about throwing a rock into a lake and or a body of water. When you throw the rock, where do the ripples start? Do they start outward and go in or they start in and they go out? Yeah. So when we start checking in with ourselves and our five senses, So there are some uh, mindfulness techniques you can use where if you're feeling anxiety right now, you would check in with your five senses. So something I see right now, something I taste right now, or you can use that one to breathe. Something I hear, something I feel, um, taste, touch, sound, feel, see. So I think that was the five. I hope I didn't miss one. Um, So you can do that. And when you're checking in with yourself and that reminds you to breathe, if there's something about this self-compassion. And now that I know that I can be good to myself and because I gave myself this moment or perhaps that breath in between. Now, when I see other people who may not be aware of their suffering, but I am, I'm able to consciously check in with them. And so I think that going back to my, my teacher in high school, yeah. there Um, something that she saw that in me again, I wasn't screaming out or acting out or asking, I'm hungry. I need food. Yeah. She must've been checked in with herself enough to notice that in me. So practices, uh, around mindfulness and, uh, which to me, mindfulness for people to make it even simpler, uh, breathing because that's giving yourself love. Mm -hmm. And also this, helps relax your brain. So when you're confronted with a stressful situation that someone else is going through and you remember to breathe, you're triggered to breathe for yourself, then you're able to listen to them better. And it's also teaches you how to sit still, you know, be still in the moment and, and be there for other people. One of the biggest tips for compassion is that listening is an act, right? So when I'm saying this is connected to the movement part of our brain, listening, I'm really saying this is about taking action and listening is an act. And I think a lot of us want to be heard. So, so, uh, mindfulness, 
listening to each other and then self-compassion for ourselves. So why do we need this in the workplace? Like why increase compassion in the workplace in the first place? There's a lot of research that actually shows compassionate, compassionate um, corporations and in the business place, they make more money, right? Happy people make more money. If you're service-based and your employees are happy because we're compassionate and we're kind to each other, then the phone is answered in a happier tone. And if someone else, if we're content with our life and we feel secure because our workplace is secure, then when someone else comes in that's having a bad day and they may be snappy at us or something like that, we're going to be less affected. Uh, affected by that because we know that our coworkers are there for us. It also fosters pride in the workplace and community uh, pride in being part of that workplace. So see your employees doing something compassionate that makes you proud to know them just as it would make you proud to see your spouse or your child or a friend do something nice. You're like, that's my friend. (laughs) So you're now making more money. Mm -hmm. You have a better affect, right? You're more mentally stable. You're happier. You're uh, you have pride in where you work. So when we like where we work, we go to work, we spend more time at work And so, again, this is just an increase, one, for mental health, but also for revenue. Mm -hmm. And so what are some other ways or benefits to increasing compassion? And how does it benefit us personally? Like, It makes sense. I mean, I think from work-wise, if you build loyalty through compassion, then people are going to work harder, longer, and faster. But it also kind of flows into your personal life too, doesn't it? Yeah, for sure. So there's also other studies that show um, people, this kind of has to do around giving. And now, not all of these words are the same, but the link is kind of the same, compassion and empathy. So people that give money actually find that they feel richer. So when you go and donate $5, you feel so good about yourself. You're like, so it's a gift that gives back to you. You're like, man, I am rich. But if you give your time, So what I'm saying, when you start listening to people talk, that's a form of compassion. If you give three minutes to let someone tell you how their day kind of went off the hinge and you're like, I see that. I see how you feel. And you just give them three minutes. You don't walk away feeling like, God, that was such a waste of my day. You walk away thinking, wow, I I have a lot of extra. You know, not a lot of extra time, but I had time to do that. You don't feel worse about yourself for doing that. So it makes us feel better about ourselves. Also, you live longer. There's a lot of research that shows it lowers um, heart the chance of heart disease Mm -hmm. and people actually live longer. So another thing that I would say, and this relates to family life, I say it, uh, I said it to my aunt just the other day because she was angry with me. And I said, look, you being angry, that's your heart attack. That's not mine. So you're angry right now, but you're not expressing this from a a very compassionate standpoint where we can work through this suffering. You're just being angry and that's going to ultimately take years off of your life. And science says that. So, so you can live longer and you also feel more of a purpose. I think, I mean, that reminds me, I think you and I once talked about 
racism really affects your health, right? And I think this kind of comes down to the fact that it creates stress. And if you don't have compassion, then your body sort of responds to it and deteriorates. And so I think it's important to, especially in the workplace. We, I think you and I talked about microprogressions before, active steps, what we can do to improve people's lives and cultivate a more inclusive sort of environment. So what's one microprogression, that, that, as you call it, a conscious and bias, that you think people can take to convolt to cultivate more compassion in the workplace? I think that one of the best things that you can do in the workplace, and that's something we also apply at my nonprofit, uh, The Bird Sanctuary, we check in with each other. So when I took over, I was like, hey, we need to have a weekly meeting where we can check in with each other, where it's a safe place. That's key. Your employees need to feel safe. And you can check in and it doesn't have to be very long, but if anybody has anything to say, they can say it. And so this kind of starts to form bonds um, and it helps people feel safe and it allows people to bring their ideas to the table. So I would say having a short check-in, even if it's when you get to work and if you're working on compassion, just yourself, yeah. um, or if you're the a manager or boss, or it doesn't matter, you can just be an employee. You can, it doesn't matter what, what level you are at in the company, you can still bring this to the table, but you check in with people. How are you doing today? And when people ask you, if they're working on that, then you should actually tell them. Sharing <laughs> oh, and being inclusive and being honest. <clears throat> this is super insightful. Thank you so much for doing this podcast with us. Um, and we're definitely looking forward to working with you. So we're honored to have you here. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to me go on about science and compassion. You can find out more about our amazing guest and some of the resources we mentioned on the show at consciouslyunbiased.com slash listen. Thanks for listening to Breaking the Bias.